So Money episode 508, Gloria Felt, co-founder and president of Take the Lead. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today, listen to this, going from teen mom and high school dropout to later the president of Planned Parenthood and being named Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year. Yeah. Our guest today is, in one word, incredible. She's also the author of the bestseller, No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change How We Think About Power. People Magazine also calls her the voice of experience. And experience she has. Gloria Felt has, from a distance, been, I mean, really one of my role models. And we have her to thank for blazing the trail for so many ambitious women. I'm I'm just elated to have her on the show today. Her latest endeavor is launching and spearheading Take the Lead. It's a nonprofit organization and movement with the goal of propelling women to take their fair and equal share of leadership positions across all sectors by 2025, which is not that far away if you think about it. And so how are we going to do that? Gloria has a master plan. And we're going to get straight to the interview to learn all about it. P.S. This interview was done pre-election results. So you might sense a lot of optimism and hope in our voices. It's still there. We're still optimistic. We're still very hopeful, but just wanted to let you know that just in case you were wondering. I think you'll enjoy the interview. Nonetheless, here is Gloria Felt. Gloria Felt, welcome to the show. I bow to you. Welcome to So Money. Farnoosh, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today. You have such a dynamic history of leadership and your own personal stories about how you really picked yourself up from as at a very young age and thrived in so many regards as a as a mother, as a business leader, as a nonprofit leader, as a thought leader. And now you your latest venture, and we'll get to all of that because I think it's worth maybe exploring those those moments in your life and what the lessons were. But today, uh, you're very excited to share about your newest venture, which is Take the Lead. And this is an organization that aims to help women secure leadership positions across all sectors by 2025 to help them really achieve equality. It's going to take a lot of work. Well, yes, it is going to take a lot of work. And I I feel sometimes like Muhammad Ali just coming out of retirement over and over and over again, because I had attempted to to semi-retire at least. And it just didn't work out that way. The last book I wrote, No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change How We Think About Power, led me to ultimately create the organization or co-found it uh, with a partner called Take the Lead, because I realized that The doors had been opened, the laws had been changed, but women weren't walking through those doors, and I had to figure out why and what to do about it. So in the process of doing that, I created a whole curriculum and, in fact, a whole comprehensive program. Our mission at Take the Lead is to prepare, develop, inspire, and propel women. So there are four keys to parity that we believe women need. That's the training the mentoring, the role modeling, and the thought leadership to help change the narrative in our own heads from 
problems to solutions. And if, if we don't have the whole package, you know, there isn't one silver bullet. So if we don't have the whole package, the change doesn't happen. And uh, you, you my, indeed, uh, my mission is to do this personally by 2025, not 2095, as the World Economic Forum has projected, uh, that that's when women will get to leadership parity. Honestly, I think it's the most important thing that I've done. I've I had the pleasure of uh, being involved in so many important advances for women over the years. But I've realized that if women don't share equally in power, leadership, and that includes money, because in our culture, money and power are almost synonymous, then we will keep fighting the same old battles. And we'll keep having to worry about the pay gap. And we'll keep having to just, you know, we'll, we'll never quite get there. Why 2025? Because, you know, I may not be able to live to 2095, but I can live to 2025. So we have to do it while I can see it. And that's only nine years away. So it's not yeah. like it's like that date in the future that seems like very Star Trekky, but actually it's actually not that far. Yeah, it's, it's right around the corner. We're going to be there before we know it. You talked about power and, and, um, you know, this is actually a very, very critical word in our vocabulary. And I was reading an article that you inked on motto.com about how we're going to get to this parody. And one of the transformations that you think is necessary is for not just women, but society to also to reevaluate and transform the word power. Tell us what you mean by that. Traditionally, we've thought of power in a paradigm that is is can be capsulized as the power over. It's been about brute force. It's been about I can make you do stuff. And the whole narrative of history, if you think about it, has been pretty much written through a male lens of war and fighting over scarce resources. What I found is that women have an ambivalent relationship toward power precisely because of that history. And I don't blame women for that. I mean, we have borne the brunt of many negative aspects of that sort of oppressive power. But once we can start transforming our idea of power from power over to the more expansive, creative, innovative power too, we can begin to realize that it's actually not about making people do stuff. It's about being able to do stuff yourself. It's about being able to create, innovate, make life better for yourself, your family, your organization, your company, your community, the world. And that in fact, there isn't a finite pie. That the more there is, the more there is. Because if I help you and you help me, we both have more. And women are good at baking more pies. We'll say that too. Um, but in an economy that's based on brains, not brawn, this idea of power is really much more the kind of leadership that I think will enable the world to move forward on a more positive note. Yes, we're still fighting many battles that are physical. We can see that. But if you think about the power of technology, that only comes when you're open to the power to the power to innovate and create. When you think about the power of of our intelligence and our creativity and our ability to think of new solutions to old problems, you can't do that in a power over mentality. So I think today's society actually functionally needs this transformation to the power too. And I know that is what helps women embrace their power and be willing to go forward with a higher level of intention to, to see themselves in leadership positions and to achieve ever higher goals. You know, sometimes what bothers me is that question of why don't we have more women hedge fund managers and why don't we have more women CEOs? And, and look, I just, I would love for there to be more women representation. And I, I think though, the reason 
sometimes that we don't even feel confident sharing is that, well, those jobs kind of stink. You know, when you think about what they actually have to make you do and the time commitment and the responsibility, if we are women who, like many men too, want fulfilling, dynamic, multifaceted lives, which includes playing many roles, not just business person, those jobs really don't cater to that. And so as you are working with your group at Take the Lead, how much are you also reaching out to the establishment to, to, to re- have them rethink, you know, what the priorities should be and how to really structure these roles? Look, we still need hedge fund managers. We still need people to lead companies. But if we want women to thrive and be interested in those roles in the first place, and even some men are saying, no, this isn't for me because I want to be home with my kids and have dinner time. Um, what what has been your experience reaching out to, to established firms and organizations that run very traditionally? And are we really, are we, is there resistance to change? Well, there's always resistance to change. And, but, and let me say, and the fact of the matter is that the institutions as we know them now were designed by men for men who had women at home taking care of the kids and the housework. And we are now, again, in an economy where almost all most families are either two earner families or they may be single parents or they they, and, and they do want a different quality of life. And that actually is starting to happen even at the CEO level now as older generations age out and the less traditionalists move into those roles. So. I I think some of this will change organically, but I don't believe in waiting for the organic change. With Take the Lead and our model of training, which actually does get women to to want to take those kinds of roles so that they can change the systems in part, we, we say, we teach, we literally teach women and actually men too, because I often do have men in, in, in the courses and in the programs that we do how you change the system. It's not, it's not complicated. It, that doesn't mean it's easy because there is resistance and there is inertia and it's hard to change a culture while you live in it, but it is possible. And so I believe that we have to be working at two different levels. One is to, first of all, we're all the CEOs of our own life and we need to decide what's important to us and what we want out of that one wild and precious life to quote uh, the the poets and and then we need to also understand we have the power to change those systems probably not alone but what we teach women is how you actually use the principles i learned in movement building to change any system you need to find the other people who who care about your problem find your tribe find your sisters and brothers have the courage to put the issues out on the table, put your facts and figures together and go put together a plan, a strategic plan and go go talk to the people who can make the change if you're not that person and get it done. Almost always you can make it done. For example, we now know that companies that have more flex time and have more ability for people to take care of their kids when they need to uh, have more loyalty among their employees and have lower turnover. Well, turnover is costly. So we have a case now to make, and that's what we need to do. You know, to hear you speak, it's it all just crystallizes for me. And I think a lot of our readers, and, and sorry, listeners and some readers, but it sounds so 
right. And I'm curious, personally, Gloria, of all the experiences that you've had from being a teen mom to um, leaving rural Texas and then go on to run Planned Parenthood. And then also, you know, you've been named as one of America's top 200 women leaders from Glamour Magazine, um, Women of the Year at Glamour Magazine, I should say. What experience or experiences do you think impacted you the most in terms of where you see yourself today and your, your point of views. Um, I know it's all blended in together, but if there were, if there is sort of one hat that you wore that was most transformative and most eye opening for you. I think that hat would be mom because waking up at age 20 with three children, three little children and realizing that at that point, um, even though I was married to a man who did have a job, it was not a very well-paying job at the time. And realizing that I had no employable skills, and if I had to contribute to the family income, or if I had to be responsible totally for the well-being of these children, there was no way I could do that. So in some regards, I, I guess you could say it was sheer desperation. I just simply knew I had to change something, do something differently. And I started to college when my youngest child was four months old, precisely for that reason. So that, I would say that would be the, the the mom hat and having that sense of responsibility and knowing that I, at some point, might need to be the support of the family or at least contribute to the family's support. That's what did it for me. Yeah, necessity breeds sometimes the most amazing things. And this show is a lot about money and we need money to make the world go around. What would you say is your defining philosophy around money and what it means to you? My defining philosophy is keeping it simple because it's ultimately not the money per se. It's what the money allows you to do. It's, it's, it's what, how having adequate resources. You don't have to be super wealthy, but you if you have adequate resources, your stress level is down. Your ability to appreciate everything in the world is down. So I would say my personal financial philosophy is around keeping it simple, having a simple financial life. Uh, and also, uh, this may be a, a smaller thing, but it's like, don't fritter your money away on the small stuff. I, I mean, I'm sorry, Starbucks, but I don't buy a latte every day, even though I could. It's just not, you know, it doesn't fulfill me. What fulfills you may be that latte. I don't know. But to me, I'd rather take that money and invest it in my grandkids' college. And when you were starting out as a young mom, three kids, I didn't realize it was three children. I'm thinking even one is (laughs) enough to (laughs) stress you out, but three children, um, you know, limited income. How did you make ends meet during that, that era? Oh my goodness. You're making me reach back into (laughs) I may not be able to provide to you. Well, here's, here's, Here's something that I would say, and that is all four of my grandparents were were immigrants, and they had this amazing work ethic, and they really believed in in saving and in savings bonds. And in what I what I remember about that time was how grateful I was for that, and how we were able to buy our first house because 
of a, get this, $150 savings bond that my Aunt Ida had purchased for me at birth. So it's, it's, to me, it's about really using what you've got, using what's available to you, the resources that are available to you yeah, and making the best of them. Mm-hmm. Seth Godin was a guest on our show and we were talking about how he divine, def- defines rich and it's, it mirrors a lot of what you just said, which is that, you know, we think of rich often as a value of money or currency, but it really is your resources. He said, if you're on this planet and you're able-bodied and you have, you know, a friend or two and you can write and speak and you're literate, those are valuable resources and you wouldn't even you might take for granted, but you're very well ahead of the game in some respects. And um, it's it's great because it's uplifting. You would think that, you know, well, until I get the raise, <laughs> I'm not going to make the moves that I need to make until I make a little bit more money. But yeah, people are resources, your skills, your talents, your failures can be resources for you because they give you a sense of what to do, not to do, or how to do the ne- your next steps. Um, that's a great lesson. Do you feel like you were, you modeled that for your kids as you see them now as adults, that, that maybe that there was some financial influence in the household? There was a lot of financial influence in the household and, and it went in several different directions. I was actually thinking about that in preparation for talking to you. And, and I was realizing that I have one child who has always carefully lived within her means. And she inherited my, you have to save the world genes. So she's done a lot of nonprofit work in her career. She's currently uh, not in that, in that mode, but she does a lot. She does a great deal of nonprofit volunteer work. And she's always been very careful with money. She's, you know, that's, that's been her way of being. I have one child who, if she ever had a nickel, she would go spend it and share, share whatever she bought with you. And she's still like that. She's usually always leveraged to the hilt. And then I have one child who is a very careful, methodical planner. I, I never have to worry about whether he has a pension plan. I never have to worry about whether he can take care of himself when he gets older or whether he has health care for his family, whether he can help, you know, whether he's got two of the boys who are in college, whether he's going to be able to pay their tuition. I always know he's planned for all of that. So I, I have it. It's all across the map. And, and I do think that part of it came from uh, from having two things at the same time. One is living in a household where they knew that money was tight and that people have two different kinds of reactions to that. Some people spend whatever they have because they don't have this bigger vision of what money can do if you save it and plan for it. And then some people, it makes them be very careful about their money. Right. Right. Um, and sometimes it's a, it's a mixture. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sometimes it's a mixture. I kind of think I have a bit of a mixture of that, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, even though, you know, I am this financial expert, big quotes, air quotes, you know, that there are still insecurities that I have. I think that's what allows me to relate so much still to my audience. And uh, I think that we all espouse that. And so when you look at your financial patterns and your financial life. And we'll get, we would love to talk about success and failure now. What would you say was your so money moment? And then following that, you know, moment that wasn't so thrilling, but did teach you a, a great deal. My so money moment, um, actually came after I had begun my career and 
when I began to grasp that, I began to grasp the freedom that, that not living on the edge gives you. And I, um, I, I guess a big so money moment for me was a, it's a, a question around when I had to do something specific in order to make that so money moment happen was actually when I came to New York for the, the uh, CEO of Planned Parenthood position. I, I thought I had done a really good job of negotiating my compensation, but I obviously hadn't carefully grasped and researched what the cost of housing in New York was going to be. And because of the nature of the work, I needed to be in near, in near to Midtown. So I had to six months in after having accepted a compensation package that I thought was pretty good at the time with an organization that, by the way, was bleeding red ink at that time. And I had to literally practically reconstruct it and bring it back together and get donor um, confidence up again. I had to renegotiate my compensation package at that time. So that was a big so money moment for me to to realize that you may think you know, but sometimes you need to do a little more digging. Right. And so the second time, how did you make your case at that point? I did a good bit of research then, and I discovered that many of the nonprofit CEOs in New York had housing allowances. And I had a feeling they weren't going to want to increase my salary package. But I was able to make the case, and with the help of some people who could validate that, that for nonprofit executives who were living in New York and were not earning at the level that, say, a corporate executive would be earning, that a housing allowance was not an unusual perk. So I was able to get that into my package. Wonderful. Yeah, sometimes just doing a little extra digging uh, outside of even, you know, your own company can give you a lot of perspective. And that's something we talk about a lot in the show because asking for your worth in the workplace, it can be uh, extremely frightening to actually articulate that and be confident at the same time. Um, but remember, employers expect you to negotiate. I mean, they are in the business of going back and forth and they probably expect you to. So hopefully that'll give you some confidence. Can I give you a, can I tell you why I'm the poster child for probably all the things you tell people not to do? Sure. Because honestly, and I, that is such good advice. And I tell women today, negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. And my personal history is of not negotiating because I was just so glad to be able to work in a position that I really loved. And, and, and that's a great thing. I mean, it's a wonderful thing when you get to have a job that you care about and you love a lot. But I will tell you when I moved to Arizona for a position that I took without even questioning what they were offering me. After I arrived, I learned they had offered the position to a man before they offered it to me. And he wouldn't take it for a, a 25% higher compensation. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it took me a few years to dig my way out of that, but I finally got up to where I needed to be. Wow. I mean, that's the thing too, is people write in and they say, well, I understand that someone at my job, same, you know, qualifications, title, everything is a man. That's the only difference. And he's making more. So should I bring that up to my manager? And I said, absolutely not. Because I mean, you want to ultimately work towards parity or even exceeding um, that salary at some point, but it's not about me versus him. It should be about what I'm worth 
you know, you can, you can more, I mean, it, it is about you making as much as him, if not more, but that's not what you lead with because I find that there's more value in talking yourself up than saying, well, compared to this guy, I should, if that's your only argument, then it's not going to really, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's better to just sort of stick up for yourself in, in all the real value that you're contributing to the company. And there's a lot of it. So bring it up. Right. Because if you research what the worth, the value is of a particular position, then you're going to actually, you will have delivered the message that you're worth what your colleagues are right. earning. I mean, it's great but, context. But in an, exactly. In a more neutral way, which is always better. Yes. It's great context. Keep that in your mind, in your mathematics when you're coming up with your, <laughs> your own value. Um, all right. Failure, you would say it was that was your failure. That was just sort of like the the not, the not really being prepared. But then you, you came back out on top. That's great. Yes. Do you think that having a female president, and hopefully we will uh, very soon, will change? How will that change the, the the mission of what you're trying to accomplish? How will that change the mood? Even though President Obama, and I agree with him, and I think you do too, that our country as a whole may, may not be so, quote unquote, prepared for a female leader. Um, but we have to sort of get to it before we're prepared. It's not something that we can wait until we're prepared to have a female leader. We just have to go for it. Exactly. What will get us prepared is having one. Because when people see a woman in that leadership role, it becomes normal. That becomes the normal role. And, um, and, and, and so here's what I think will happen. It's not going to be a panacea. And the mistake that people often make is to believe that a victory is the end of the game. But when it comes to making these kinds of big changes in our culture and our, our, our leadership parity numbers, it's just the beginning. It really will be just the beginning. You know, if you think about Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister in Great Britain and how many decades was it between the time she was prime minister and the next one. So you can't take it for granted in a democracy, nothing is ever won forever. So even in politics, it will not change everything, but it will open up. It will open up more opportunities. Every little girl will see that she could become president. And that hasn't been the case before. So that's fantastic. Right. Uh, it will also mean that that in this particular instance, because of the agenda that this particular woman brings with her, and I'm saying that because it's the, the agenda is even more important than the gender. But the agenda that this particular woman brings with her will include things like like fair pay legislation and 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 possibly the Equal Rights Amendment and many other policy issues that she has championed over the years. And so in that sense, it will make a difference as well. And, you know, this is just the moment. I think this is, this is you know, uh, uh, Andy Grove, the late CEO of Intel, used to call this a strategic inflection moment. This is one of those strategic inflection moments when we can make huge advances, but only if we keep working at it. It will not be over when it's over. 
And we can apply that to all of our own personal lives. What is your strategic inflection moment? Are you having it one? Are you having one right now? I feel like I sort of am having one right now. <laughs> oh, are you? Oh, I'd love to hear bit. that. I mean, it's more like I'm, you know, I'm starting a new, I just, I just wrapped a workshop last week, um, helping authors or entrepreneurs rather learn how to write books and leverage their books to, for more success. And I had so much fun with it. And if you think of who I, what I do and my work, it's not something that you would think would be in my wheelhouse because so much of my work is around money and, you know, financial advice. But this is something that I know very well how to do, which I saw, decided I'm going to start teaching it. And I really see a lot of potential with it. It's exciting. The feedback was great. And I'm hoping to then now grow this into more workshops and online course. Who knows? It's, it'll be really interesting to see in a few years where um, my work takes me, but it's always exciting to try new things. And I was prepared completely for this to fail and be a flop. Fortunately, it wasn't, but, um, it's one of those things where I'm now it's like the work has just begun. <laughs> it's like, absolutely. And yeah. so a total inflection point, hopefully cr- fingers crossed. I'm hoping that, or I believe that, and I intend to make take the lead, that inflection point. Wonderful. For me at this point, it is a legacy inflection point. It is, I think, the most important thing I've ever done, to be honest with you. And I've, I've had the opportunity to do so many things that, that I've been fortunate to see make a difference for women. But I think this is, this is the moment. I really do believe this is the moment when women can make these tremendous advances. And here's why. Because it's the first time we've had the, a convergence of what's the right thing to do with the, what the business case is. So we know that companies with more women in their upper leadership make more money. I mean, that's, been, that's indisputable at this point. So the question then is, how can we help those companies recruit, retain, and keep those women moving up into their leadership pipelines? And that's what Take the Lead is doing. And, uh, and the way I will do it in, in, in a scaling up fashion is that I am now training other people to do this core training so that it's not just me. I love doing it, but... I now have 30 other people who have been trained and certified to do the same kind of training because you have to ultimately scale up your vision in order to make a big difference. And and so that's my current uh, uh, strategic inflection point. Yes, you have leadership ambassadors, which is uh, so key. I also think that... And we touched on this earlier that men are such a big, important part of this mission as well. We need the male support and um, bringing them into the fray will make this not just a woman's issue, but everyone's issue. Because when women succeed, everybody succeeds. So it's in everybody's best interest to take uh, to participate in this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that you raise that that issue because, you know, I you know, the there, there was a book called The End of Men, which I really hated yes. that title because I see this I see this as being the beginning of women and the beginning mm-hmm. of a real partnership between the two. And I what I see when I talk with women in various different companies and when I talk with men and uh, incidentally, I, I teach this as an academic course as well that's co-listed with the business school. And so I have about 25 percent men in that academic course all the time. And I find that they are equally interested in having a life as well as making a living. So we have a generation of men who want to be part of their children's lives. They will help change the systems. But women still 
have to have the courage to speak up and say what they want and need, because often the women have a bigger stake in it. We can't, we, we just, we have to realize that. But as soon as we raise the issues, it's almost inevitable that we also have male partners. And one final thing I'll say about that is that when you talk with CEOs who have daughters, they tend to have a very different outlook on how they want to support the growth of women's leadership parity than those who do not. So, you know, we'll do lots of things for our kids that we won't do for ourselves. Such a really great point. So I find too that men with who have daughters um, are just more, I guess, maybe this is just my experience, but they do seem to be more open-minded and receptive to uh, gender parity. I mean, that, I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? Why? But uh more reason to, I'm actually having a daughter. I'm, I'm carrying oh, my second right now. So congratulations. I, thank you. Looking forward to bringing her into the world. Also a little scared, but also really excited. <laughs> little <laughs> girls uh, tend to grow up very quickly. Um, yes, they do. Whether you're ready for it or not. So that's, uh, that's in our future. Gloria, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing with us your new venture, your new initiative. We want to support you. So we're going to encourage everybody to go to TakeTheLeadWomen.com and learn more about how you can get involved. And um, we wish you the continued success. This is just the beginning, I know. But hopefully, you'll look back and go, this was the inflection point of all inflection points. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. And I've enjoyed talking with you. And I must have you now come and be a guest on our monthly virtual happy hour. I would love that. Would you do that? I'm in. Just tell me when. Okay, Okay. we'll do it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gloria Fell, for stopping by. If you'd like to learn more about Take the Lead, which I hope you do, head over to TakeTheLeadWomen.com. And Gloria's book, again, the bestseller is called No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change How We Think About Power. For more on this interview and the transcript, the audio, head over to SoMoneyPodcast.com. And while you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh if you have a question about rising the ranks as a female, uh, getting your fair share, getting equal pay, write in and let me know. I'll try to tackle that for you as well as any other money questions that you have. We like to collect all of this and uh, reserve it for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Really appreciate it. And I hope your day is so money. <laughs>